Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, fans of Baha'i Blogcast, thanks so much for tuning in. You know who you are, all 137 of you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'm super duper excited for this episode. I know I say that every episode. I really do. But about half of them, I'm not as excited as I say that I'm as excited. Today, I truly am super duper excited to be speaking with a couple who is in the same uh, business that I'm in, i.e. the media, and who have become, um, dare I say, experts in Abdu'l-Bahá and Abdu'l-Bahá's trip to America and stories of Abdu'l-Bahá. And in this centennial, since the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá, we are doing several, I don't know how many, because we're right at the beginning of it right now, but several, several, hopefully a dozen or maybe dozens of episodes focusing on Abdu'l-Bahá, the personage, the story, the mythology, the teachings, the the glory, the, the splendor of his life. And um, who better than to bring onto the show than Anne and Tim Perry, the uh, directors and creators of the wonderful documentary that I'm sure many of you have seen, entitled Luminous Journey. But there's a lot more to them than that. I can't wait to get to know them. And thanks again for tuning in. Anne and Tim, welcome to Baha'i Blogcast. Thank you so much, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Thank you. Glad to be here. And are you guys tuning in from Dallas, is that correct? Yeah, we uh, we live in a little town, a little suburb of Dallas in the south side. Yeah. Okay, excellent, excellent. Well, Anne, you were so good to create a, a an amazing kind of backgrounder on the two of you and fun facts and uh, stories and things to watch, and that is fantastic. And let's start with you. Tell us your story. How did you find the Baha'i faith? And what brought you to specifically be serving the Baha'i faith through your work in education and creation of uh, all of these tremendous media projects? Oh, thank you, Rain. Well, I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas, and I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and my parents were very involved in the civil rights movement. And I can remember many times going to protests and my father marching in Selma, and my mother was on the school board, and they were trying to integrate the schools at a time when it was not very popular to do so. So we would get phone calls, you know, in lover, click, and I would be five years old and wondering what that meant. And um, so I grew up different than many of my friends who um, did not work for racial justice and such. And um, so I went off to college and I I started searching and I, I studied yoga and Catholicism and Buddhism and various pathways and... I came home to Little I've never Rock. heard anyone say before, I've studied yoga and Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time. <laughs> That's great. So the, the seeds were sown in your childhood for 
something greater than just uh, material progress in the world, social justice, racial justice, right. etc. And then some spiritual curiosity sounds like followed soon thereby. Yes, I was raised as a liberal Presbyterian, but then I became fascinated with the idea of the connection of different religions. So mm. I remember I took a comparative religion course in summer school, and I was so... Uh, amazed that all the prophets or manifestations of God had similar stories around them. And I was at a swimming party telling people about this, and a young man who had met a Baha'i but was not a Baha'i himself um, followed me. I was swimming in the pool, and he was following me and trying to tell me more about the Baha'i faith. And I thought, but surely I've, I would have heard of it by now if it was something, you know, large or real or significant. Mm -hmm. So I kept avoiding him. But at the end of the evening, he insisted I take this Baha'i book. The book was Baha'i World Faith. And I read one sentence from it about a week later, and I started pacing up and down. And I thought, either this is the answer to everything, or it's something I shouldn't be delving into, because I found the passage thrilling and and very uh, dramatic and inspiring and all that. Do you remember what the passage was by any chance? I don't, but I remember calling that young man and saying, you'd better come over and tell me more about this. And mm -hmm. he did. He told me what he knew. He had just met a Baha'i who had given him this book. And so we decided to look in the phone book to see if there was a Baha'i listing. And, and I thought, well, maybe there's one in Memphis or Dallas or Chicago or somewhere. But we found a listing in Little Rock. And we called, and that night went to a fireside, which is an informal gathering to hear about the faith. And I was stunned that night that my questions I had had for so many years were addressed and answered. And it was really very dramatic. And also, at that gathering, they were black and white, young and old, and they were very jovial. And I thought, you know, I was a very serious seeker. And um, mm. so I wasn't into the social part as much as the spiritual questing. But very soon after that, I became uh, familiar with the community and did embrace the faith. Wow, that's great. And it sounds like, from your backgrounder, that took you around a lot. You went to the opening of the Panama Temple, the Indian Temple. You lived near Greenacre for several years. Mm-hmm. And I worked in Wilmette for a few years. And, you know, in this, you, you wrote that you have a tremendous uh, passion for the history of Greenacre. I know that's not our topic tonight, but as someone who knows almost nothing about Greenacre, can you give us some fun facts? Can you give us, like, five significant scintillating tidbits about about Greenacre, Baha'i School, and that area in Maine? Yes, it's in Elliott, Maine, which is in southern Maine near Portsmouth. And the most significant fact is that Abdul Baha visited there for a week in 1912. Mm. So, but um, Sarah Farmer, who was a transcendentalist and um, knew people like Sojourner Truth and Harriet Beecher Stowe and different people, flew the first peace flag in the world and was committed to unity long before she heard of the Baha'i Faith, which was in 1900. But in the 1890s, Greenacre was established and uh, as a hotel at first. She was a partner with four men who wanted to have a successful resort hotel on this beautiful river on the banks of the Piscataqua River. 
And so the hotel was was not doing that well one summer, and she wanted to have a, a school for comparative religion. So she started inviting swamis and you know people like uh, the Buddhist Dharmapala and different people from different backgrounds to to come and to um, to share their perspective. And she encouraged everyone to have an open mind. So as soon as I heard of her, I read an article in East West Journal, and I knew I had to go to Green Acre. Mm. And so um, I went and eventually worked on a book called Green Acre on the Piscataqua. Oh, great. Is that a book that's available? Is it out, out it there is. somewhere? It is, through oh. Baha'i Distribution Service. And aren't there prophecies about Green Acre made by Abdul Baha? Yes. When he was there, he spoke about her vision and confirmed it. And um, in fact, the story about when she met him was very interesting because she was going to Egypt and learned through meeting friends on the boat that they were going to Akka to meet Abdu'l-Bahá. So she cabled, he said yes. When she met him, she had prepared a list of questions and put them in her Bible. But that morning she forgot her list and he answered all her questions without being asked. Mm. And he confirmed her vision and... uh, told her that great things would come of this center she had developed. And then when he was there, he walked with her on this mountain where he said there would be a future Baha'i temple and a university surrounding the temple. Wow. And he he pointed out where the buildings would be. Oh, my goodness. That's great. That sends tingles. That's amazing. Speaking of the peace flag, my wife and I bought a new house this last year, and they have a big flagpole, I think obviously they had an American flag, and we got a giant peace flag, like one of those old school light blue ones with the doves, you know, like from the 60s. Oh, good. And we have a, so our neighbors think, I think they think we're very, very weird. We have a giant peace, peace flag in our front yard. That's pretty cool. Well, people thought Sarah Farmer was weird too. In fact, they ended up locking her up because, well, there's, it's a complicated history, but you know, she was a woman who had her own mind, and her she wanted to to bring all these people together. And then she embraced the Baha'i faith, and some people were critical of that because they felt she had become sectarian or embraced mm. one one path. But for her, it was the path that connected everything. Mm. Mm. And Tim, what about you? Give us your nutshell history. <laughs> well, I'm a native Californian. And uh, I kind of grew up in the West. My, my parents, my mother was uh, of the Christian science faith, and my father was Catholic, Portuguese Catholic. And that, that didn't work out so well. So when I was very young, four or five, something like that, they, they got a divorce. And um, so my mother moved to the Western states. And um, so in, in the nutshell of, of all that, which kind of leads to how I became a Baha'i, is that um, grade school was in Wyoming and um, middle school was in Colorado and then high school was in Arizona and then finally back to California. So I kind of did this circle. Mm-hmm. So it was um, living, I was living in uh, Lake Havasu City, Arizona. That's where I went to high school. And <clears throat> it, we moved from Boulder, Colorado there. My my mother and, and stepfather at the time um, decided to buy some land. It was a whole new development, and they were going to bring the London Bridge out to Lake Havasu. And so um, 
they they bought a plot of land and we moved into a, a little house and um then uh, you know I, leaving colorado to land somewhere in the desert and it was 1969 and they were just about to land on the moon and i thought i had already got there and uh, <laughs> so out of high school i decided to stay in town my my parents really didn't talk to me much about uh going to college or anything like that. And it was, it was quite a mix of friends there um, in, in the school and kids from all over the United States and of, of different economic you know, situations. And so most of them went off to college and I stayed the year after working at a gas station and having a lot of time to sit in the desert and look at the stars and, and think about things. And I started, actually, I, um, I started in show business because um, I wound up cleaning and mopping the floors at the, the local cinema there and uh, popping popcorn and kind of work, <laughs> working there. And, and it was at that time that I met a guy who was a local radio DJ, and he was into some really interesting stuff. Uh, he was really into theosophy. And I was, of course, impressed by him anyway, because he was kind of a, a celebrity in our little desert town. And so I would listen to him talk about spiritual matters and, and thoughts and things like that. And after a while, that really kind of got me curious. And I, I decided to start investigating stuff myself and started looking into the, like, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and just all manner of things. You know, I started to think, well, reincarnation makes a lot of sense. And I took a little road trip that particular year and decided to drive out to California and up the coast to Washington and visit a, a high school buddy. And I'd taken all these books with me, you know, different philosophies. And I had had my eight-track tape in my Rambler station wagon. And I didn't really, you know, I just bought it and I started just buying stuff. And I bought Seals and Crofts. And um, I would also work uh, on weekends at a, at a little restaurant bar, bussing tables and stuff. And every now and then I'd hear Seals and Crofts playing on the radio. And uh I thought, these, these black ladies are really good, you know, because um, I, I, I didn't know, you know. So I, I, I grabbed some eight tracks. I bought George Harrison's Living in a Material World and the Doobie Brothers that had the, the album that had Jesus is Just All Right with Me and Seals and Crofts, We May Never Pass This Way Again. And, and it was sort of my soundtrack to the road trip. And so I'd listen to that. And at night at campgrounds, I'd, I'd read these books. And uh, when I got back to Lake Havasu, um, one of my friend's moms was like the only Baha'i in town. They had moved from Wisconsin. I guess she found the faith in Wisconsin. And so I went over to show my friend all the, all the stuff that I'd found about, you know, spiritual truth. And I had these bookmarks in this huge stack of books. You know, I think that's truth. I think that's truth. And so she said, well, have you heard of the Baha'i faith? And I said, well, no, no, I hadn't. She says, well, everything that you are looking for is here. Uh, and so I took one of her books, and I guess I was like like fertile soil. I was just like ready, and uh, you know, within a within a week, and and reading, it's like, yeah, this is you know, this is truth, and and it made complete sense to me. And so I immediately, you know, declared my faith, and yeah, so that was kind of the beginnings. Um, not long after that, we moved to California, um, where my family had a homestead just north of Los Angeles, and. Uh, my first Baha'i community, I, I, I got to meet a Baha'i community for the first time um, mm. because I was an isolated believer out there um, in Arizona. And so there was a Newhall, uh, Santa Clarita Valley area and uh, mm -hmm. fell in love with, you know, the friends. Was, I remember going to the first meeting. You know, I, I called them up, found them, found out where the Baha'is were. And um, 
remember walking into the apartment where they were having the Baha'i feast, and it was like I had knew I had I knew everybody. It was it was so strange. It was this spiritual connection instantly that I had never experienced in my life, and mm. uh, stayed in um, in the in that area for quite a long time, and moved around and uh, in in the Los Angeles area, and, and then began working. Did a little community college time, ran into... We had some really interesting young Baha'is at the time in, in that area that were an influence on my life as well. So, mm-hmm. Well, that's great. I think one thing that's true about both of your stories is you were on a spiritual quest and a search and open-hearted and looking for the truth. And I always tell stories about the 60s and 70s, even though I'm a bit younger. I was born in 66, so... I don't remember the 60s so much, but I do remember, you know, just being a kid in the milieu of the mid-70s where a lot of people were like Tim on a similar story as you. And it it just always strikes me like how, and I always wonder what's going on with this. Like, why why are people not on that same quest right now? Or why, why does it seem like people aren't, or so few people are, rather, when everyone was back in that time? I mean, it was just so prevalent that everyone is this exploring and reading. And if you were a member of a strange sounding religion, they'd be like, oh, tell me more. I want to know more. Now you tell them you're a member of a strange sounding religion. They're like, okay, thank you. But such a different kind of mindset in the water. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was a vibe. Definitely there was a vibe going on out there. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and the arts really influenced me with with the, you know, Seals and Crofts. I was a huge fan. I'm a musician, and so really when I found out that these guys were Baha'is, I was like, wow, that's really cool because their music is so spiritual. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So how did you two meet? Well, we met at the House of Worship, actually, when Tim was working on three video pieces for the Baha'i World Congress, which was a big conference in New York City in 1992. And um, we actually met in the doorway of media services because he had been told that that I was I worked part-time there and I could assist him in finding some footage and photographs and such. And I had kind of given up on meeting someone, but the night before I had told God, if you want me to be married, you need to find someone for me. You know, and I, I really let it go. And sure. the very put next on, day— Put it on God's, put really, it on God's shoulders. I was just—I yep. had just sort of given up. And then I walked in, and I met this man that I was suddenly interesty, interested in. And um, Yeah, I had been there. I had been there all week doing research. And, uh, and, and media services in those days was in the basement of the, you know, downstairs at the, at the mm-hmm. house of worship. And um, it was like— um, they kept saying, "Yeah, this Anne, and she'll be your production assistant. She'll send you stuff. You know, when you go back to LA, she'll send you stuff for the for the video." And and uh, and they kept talking about her, and she never showed. She just well, I had been in Mexico, and I had had a, a hiking adventure where, you know, my skin had gotten all scratched up and everything. So I came back, and I didn't come in for a few days. And so when I did, Goodness. and and then. We went to lunch, and then that night I was going to go dancing, and so I just invited Tim along, but I was supposed to have some blind date or something that night, and yeah, I just and, said, and, and well, I, pretend like you're an old friend of mine. Anyway. I, I was supposed to go see Batman, and, and, uh, <laughs> but then I, got, I, I, then I got smitten by her, and uh, I said, nah, I can, I can wait. I, I, I oh, be, that's beautiful. I want to be with her. 
So I we, love that. We went out dancing, and then he went back to California, but we had a wonderful long-distance romance, and he would send me these long faxes, you know, back in the days of fax machines. and Faxes are so romantic. Yeah, you know, he would draw, and I'd get, I'd come home, and I'd have a 12-foot-long love letter with all these drawings on it. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of love faxes before. This, right. is, this is a first. <clears throat> well, now you have. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? Well, let's let's jump forward a little bit. Now that we've gotten to know you guys a little bit, you know, Anne, it, it, it should be noted, uh, so Tim has been working in, in media for many years, and Anne, you've finished two master's degrees and have a PhD in aesthetic studies, which is, well, I have to ask, what is aesthetic studies? I've never heard of that before. Well, it's the study of the beautiful, you know, yeah. philosophy of art, but it's not just theory. There was a lot of, you know, I had a lot of classes in experiential art and in, you know, various things, r- literature, theater, visual art, you know, just oh, the great. study of lots of arts. And I just kept on at it. And so a lot of the, the things I've done have been in the educational sphere versus in the commercial sphere, which Tim has been stronger in. Mm. They, they, um, they had a program in Dallas. And so Anne, when I met her, she had already committed to coming to Dallas for her PhD. And that's how come I left California to, mm-hmm. to come to Dallas if I was going to be around Anne. He had to Got sacrifice it. a lot of things, including that the, is a, that's the, a sacrifice. The Pacific yeah. Ocean. Yeah, I was living, yeah. I was living in Huntington Beach, and I don't care what the politicians say. Leaving California for Texas is a sacrifice. Sorry, no offense, anyone. None taken. Um, He's still well, adjusting. <laughs> well, moving forward a little bit, um, I wanted to talk to you about the project for which the two of you are best known, which is this extraordinary long form documentary, Luminous Journey, which now, folks, exists on its own YouTube channel. We'll put the link in down below. It's it's a magnificent kind of overall primer of Abdu'l-Bahá's 239 days uh, in America. It, it gives a tremendous amount of background as well. I mean, there's so much to this film. We'll talk about it. There's reenactments. There's tons of motion graphics, lots of narration, beautiful quotes, era, you know, historic era photographs. Uh, it's really, really magnificent and um, super interesting. So how did that uh, how did that come to be? Obviously, it must have taken years of preparation and research to get before creating a single frame of that film. Well, interestingly, I mean, we are very independent as artists, and so we haven't done a lot of projects with each other, but this one we were both equally committed to. And someone remembers on our 2006 pilgrimage to the Holy Land that we mentioned that we wanted to make such a film. And it was purely an individual in initiative. No one really suggested we should do this, but we started gathering stories. And Alan, Dr. Alan Ward was one of my Baha'i teachers, and he had written this book called 239 Days. And that was a place to start. But also, I started researching with Mahmoud every day. And in 2011 and 12, I followed the journey every single day and Mm. blogged about it and started a script of sorts. Gradually, you know, but it did take like three years of intense work to make the film. But I would say probably 20 years for each of us went into evolving toward making it. Yeah, Yeah, I um, I had first encountered standing in a location where Abdu'l-Bahá had stood, and that was 
you know, in Inglewood in the cemetery at, at the grave of Thornton Chase. And I used to trip on that. I, I would just be there and I'd stay there and pray. And it, I thought, man, what a Abdu'l-Bahá stood here. You know, this kind of was blowing my mind. And, you know, periodically I just, I just have to go back and, and be there. And then, um, so that was my first encounter with being what I would consider in a sacred space. And later, um, when before the Baha'i World Congress was getting going, they, they called um, a meeting with potential producers for the, uh, for the videos for the plenary session. And uh, so I was invited to go to Greenacre and to, to meet with uh, the people that were going to be in charge of, of that part of the, the meeting or the, the Congress. And so here I now was in another place that Abdu'l-Bahá had spent time in. So those you know, then to later on, we uh, we went to Washington D.C. I think it was I'm not sure 2007 or maybe it was 2006. Who knows? And there's a gentleman there, Lex Mustaf, and he is a historian for the D.C. area and very knowledgeable about uh, Louis Gregory and where Abdul Baha was, where he stayed, and Agnes Parsons, and so he had a bus tour. And uh, we signed up for the bus tour, and he, we got box lunches, and we all got on the bus and. He would drive, drove this big bus around, and we'd go to all these locations. And so, again, being in these places where Abdu'l-Bahá had stayed, that started giving us, giving me anyway, um, a real strong motivation to want to continue that and, and then to document that as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there, there may be, of the 137 listeners, there might be 24 that don't know either who Abdu'l-Bahá is or very much about him. This is mostly a Baha'i audience, but uh, we have a surprising number of people investigating the faith that listen to these uh, podcasts. Can you tell us, please, Anne, a uh, background on, on Abdu'l-Bahá, who he was, and uh, what his mission was and what his importance is? Certainly. Well, I can try. Um, he is the son of Baha'u'llah, who is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, and he was designated as the center of the covenant and in terms of the Baha'i faith. And he's actually called the mystery of God. He, he actually is not a prophet of God, but something in between. So he's really unique in religious history. And we were certainly intrigued with his visit to America, which was after he was released from prison. And maybe Tim could share more of that part of the story. But... He came here basically as a peace ambassador, and we're learning now about the larger journey that first he went to Egypt and then to France and other countries in Europe before he came to America and then went back to Europe. And his journey overall was three years, so it's quite a lot of time to study. Yeah, he, um, he sort of embodied <clears throat> the, the, the Christ spirit. Um, he, in... in and I think the idea of the mystery of God kind of is a good description of that because he he and in the in the film talks about this you know these moments where you see something otherworldly about him or how he how he is with people or what he says, but when he he came you know he was so well received and it, it reminded me of um, Nelson Mandela because Abdul Baha had been a, a political prisoner for forty years. And then uh, a prisoner of both the, the Persian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. And 
there was a revolution in in Turkey, and the young Turks freed all the political prisoners, and finally Abdu'l-Bahá was freed. And at the time, there was about a thousand Baha'is in America and Canada, and so they wanted him to come and to be, you know, to come to our country. And I think of the way when uh, Nelson Mandela was finally released from prison and and was invited to come here, and how. Uh, America opened its arms and received him. And I th- it was very much like that for Abdu'l-Bahá. Uh, here was a person that was wronged, had great respect, and had a unique perspective. And, you know, he, he was coming to our shores. And so the press was very kind. And the people, I mean, you know, the story really talks about the throngs of people and, and, the, and the things that he, uh, that he said here. And his, mm. his vision for our nation as well. I heard a story recently from my good friend and spiritual mentor, the great Liz Dwyer, and she was talking about how Abdu'l-Bahá was invited to the United States earlier, like immediately when he was released from prison, but he didn't come and he chose not to come because there was still racial disunity in the United States where, especially in Washington, D.C., where they had separate meetings for blacks and whites. Did you, do you know anything about that story? Well, certainly he talked a lot about race unity and um, in everywhere he went, and also gender equality. And he was concerned about unity in general, that, that you know, people have prejudice against, whether it's based on ethnicity or, you know, the country you're from or the language you speak. You know, he tried to renew, remove differences and, um, and uphold yeah, unity. He- he did show by example quite often. I mean, he, he hated the segregation. He showed by example the uh, what it meant to be unified and to be free of prejudice. And often he would insist that the the meetings were mixed. And if he found that there was a situation where he was giving a talk or a hotel, um, didn't want to accept black people, um, he would change the venue or mm-hmm. he would have a separate meeting um, inviting the black people and uh, for that. And there was uh, Louis Gregory um, was... Uh, An early African-American Baha'i who yes, was that's, um, yes, um, greatly favored by Abdu'l-Baha. Mm-hmm. He was. He, he basically match-made uh, Louis Gregory with um, Louisa... Matthew. Matthews. Um, she was um, a, a white English woman. He was um, an African-American... And he basically brought them together, and uh, you know, to demonstrate the an example of the unity of people. And at that time, it was against the law in many states for a, a black person to marry a white sure. person. So, mm-hmm. Before yeah. the loving laws, you spent these years working on this film, a tremendous amount of research. You must have unearthed some incredible tidbits and some incredible stories that aren't as well known. In the books, and I would love to hear both from both of you. Maybe your favorite story of Abdul Baha in America, uh, as you know, that is the focus of this of the this series of podcasts. But but also, like, were, were there things that you discovered that kind of blew your mind or made your jaw drop? Well, certainly, and we kept yearning for a time machine, you know, to actually go back and observe it. It was it was kind of hard because some aspects of research weren't evident at the time, but I read this wonderful quote I'd like to share that Mm -hmm. gave me 
insight into how to bend time and space. And it's a quote from Abdu'l-Bahá, and it says, For any movement animated by love moveth from the periphery to the center, from space to the day star of the universe. Perchance thou deemest this to be difficult, but I tell thee that such cannot be the case. For when the motivating and guiding power is the divine force of magnetism, it is possible by its aid to traverse time and space easily and swiftly. And we experienced this on this journey. We felt his guiding hand. We felt a lot of people opening the doors to us and, um, Mm. you know, magical things would happen. And I want to share the magic lantern story. But in his day, there were many things that occurred that we we couldn't tell in the film. Well, first of all, I wrote a script for like an eight-hour film. And Uh then we had to Cut, cut, cut. And some of the edits were because we couldn't visualize the story. So one was about a little boy from a First Nations boy from Canada who was sitting on a fence post when Abdu'l-Bahá's train left Montreal and it was going near Toronto. And the little boy saw this man with a turban and long robe. And Abdu'l-Bahá stood up and waved to the boy. And the boy was so surprised he fell off the fence. (laughs) <laughs> and 40 years later, he saw a picture of Abdu'l-Bahá in someone's home, and he said, that's the man I saw. And he became the first of his tribe to embrace the faith. Oh, and, wow. And there was another story that I loved about an illiterate man in San Francisco who walked to see Abdu'l-Bahá in a church. And Abdu'l-Bahá was on the stage speaking in Persian, mostly, and then a translator would interpret for him. And the man got very agitated, and he said, why is that man interrupting Abdu'l-Bahá? And, and others around him said, shh, he's translating. And it happened again. And he said, could you tell that man to stop interrupting Abdu'l-Bahá? And they said, no, we need to hear the translation. He said, but anyone could understand what he's saying. Mm. In other mm. words, he could speak to hearts in a way that is magical and mysterious, and um, the journey is so much more than any of us could realize or hold in our imaginations or memories. You know, our mm. telling of it is just one aspect. It shows one part of the journey, and it's so much more than that. I have a little tidbit, a discovery that we unearthed, and it's in the film. When he was in California, it was a time when there was – it was an election year, 1912, and – Woodrow Wilson was running against Teddy Roosevelt and, and, and then the incumbent president as well, uh, Howard Taft. So Abdu'l-Bahá was asked about, you know, the qualifications of being the president. And um, I have a, a quote here because I, I don't want to paraphrase it. He said, um, he said, the president must be a man who does not insistently seek the presidency. He should be a person free from all thoughts of name and rank. Rather, he should say, I am unworthy and incapable of this position, and cannot bear this great burden. He said, the president must be a well-wisher of all and not a self-seeking person. I thought that was pretty interesting. And then uh, later uh, in New York, uh, Florence Kahn, who was um, a person that was hosting Abdu'l-Bahá, she asked, what would you say if a woman were to become president of the United States? Uh, And Abdu'l-Bahá's response to to this was, the time will come when the presidency will go begging. 
so advanced will civilization have become that no one will want to leave his social and humanitarian tasks to take time to assume the presidency. And I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> That's amazing. It says Can you a lot. imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine they're searching high and low? Somebody, please, you know, Phil, yeah. please give up your job at behind the counter at the Seven Eleven. Be president. Yeah, man. Yeah. No, I... And he, his name, Abdu'l-Bahá, means servant of glory. Um, that's the the literal translation of it. And he himself, he said, "I'm I'm but a servant." And and the the focus of the examples that he gave and and the you know, kind of the direction that the, the faith is going and everything that his father uh, taught is about service to humankind. And so Abdul Baha is giving us this foreshadowing of a future where it's going to be society based around humanitarianism and service and you know caring for others and um, and so things altruism and yeah. philanthropy. All those things, yeah. So, yeah. So I just thought of another little-known story, which was when he was on the boat coming over to America, some of the Westerners that were traveling with him um, suggested that he adopt Western dress instead of his long robes and turban. And he just looked at them and said, oh, these things are just trifles. And the ironic thing was that I had read that story after three days of making costumes and glue gunning, you know, ornaments on hats and things. And I thought, oh, I've for been... For the cons- reenactments in your for film. The re- yeah, for the mm-hmm. reenactments. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, no, I've just been, you know, obsessed with these trifles. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that his, his dress and his manner and his um, upward, you know, he would always raise his hands upward and, and just promote such a positive spirit, and it was very attractive to people at the time. And while we were working on the film and traveling to different places, we found people just would come up to us and want to be part of it. Or We had um, a number of actors who weren't Baha'is and didn't know the story, but just volunteered to put on costumes and go jump with us on a train or, you know, be in a, a drawing room somewhere. Oh, that's great. Yes. So... Favorite stories of Abdu'l-Bahá in America? Well, for me, I mean, part of what making this film meant to me was, and to Anne, I think, was that this is a part of American history that is, hasn't been told yet and hasn't, mm. isn't, you know, that I think in the future it will be in the history books and taught in schools. So for me, the favorite stories and the favorite things that, that I've learned is his, um, you know, the vision that he had for, for, the, for America. Um, he spoke often of what America is, and he gave blessings to this country. Um, he even he revealed a prayer in Chicago, um, which which says, um, in part, he says, "Oh God, let this American democracy become glorious in spiritual degrees, even as it has aspired to material degrees, and render this just government victorious. Confirm this revered nation to appraise the standard of the oneness of humanity." to promulgate the most great peace, to become thereby most glorious and praiseworthy among the nations of the world. And again, like on his last night in America, he spoke to the Theosophical Society and he said, I have received the greatest kindness from the American people. I look upon them as a noble nation, capable of every perfection. I pray that you may attain the highest station of humanity, 
I shall never forget you. You shall always live in my thought. And I guess, you know, we go through a lot. Um, we, we're going through a lot these days. Our nation goes through ups and downs. And But to have this, this vision that, that he had for our country, I thought that was really magical and really important. And it gives me hope. And, and I think that, you know, that's where the future belongs to those who, who give people um, hope. Uh, that's not my quote, but it's it's a paraphrasing yeah. a futurist. So those are some of my favorite stories anyway. Where Yeah, Tim, I think that perspective is so valuable. Perhaps the first time in American history where someone seeking peace, seeking to bind people together in peace and unity, seeking to heal racism, seeking to heal gender differences and economic disparities, has a vision for America that is, you know, one that is spiritual as well as material. Um, the whole focus of America had been, you know, this is the land of opportunity and the American dream and whatnot, but his vision for what America could be, which we're certainly struggling on our way to get there, is one of hope. And, you know, I think sometimes I myself, and I know a lot of other Baha'is, and not just Baha'i spiritual folk and people trying to make the world a better place, it's it's real easy to give up, you know, and it's really easy to just get jaded and cynical and and be like, well, things are just never going to change. But, you know, he provided a template for looking at a spiritually mature and united country that embraces its native inhabitants, its African-American, you know, imported slave inhabitants, um, gives them a special, incredibly special and important station. And that that is, it, it is uplifting. And one of my favorite stories is um, when the believers in New York wanted to give him a, a banquet before he left, they had invited a number of people, and at the last minute, the hotel proprietor learned that it was going to be a diverse crowd, and he refused to allow African Americans to come to the event. And it was held anyway, but Abdu'l-Bahá spoke passionately about the oneness of humankind at that gathering. And then the very next night, they held another event where the white friends served the darker friends, and Abdu'l-Bahá said this made him very happy. And the interesting thing is, when we were filming that scene, we were actually in San Francisco, in, in Berkeley, at a friend's house, and we had planned to shoot the, the scene that night, and we'd, we'd gone over to San Francisco to check out some lighting equipment from the Art Institute, which is one of my sister's schools. And I had made this announcement there well, about extras, if any extras wanted to come and be part of this scene, and that we could pay a little bit for extras. And so Tim was very nervous because I made this announcement in front of all these people. Some students had a lot of tattoos, and you know, some looked, <laughs> like, some looked like rough characters, you know. Well, at any rate, a whole car full of people showed up from that group. And Tim was setting up the lighting equipment, and one of our lights blew out, and another one didn't work. And he turned to me and said, I don't think we can shoot the scene. And I turned to those students and I said, do you have a lighting kit in your car? And they said yes, and they saved the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they, really, they really did. Yeah. So they were there checking out lights like we were at the same time. And you know, and these are, you know, that's kind of those little blessings that seem to happen for us uh, all along the way, doors mm -hmm. opening. And when we were at the Bowery in New York, you know, we were getting ready to film there and we were introduced um, to the gentleman who was um, in charge there. And 
He was so gracious. And we, we walked into the little chapel at the Bowery. And this is where, since the time of Abdu'l-Bahá and before, um, the people that needed food, that didn't have food, the homeless, the people that just needed a place to stay, um, would come. And um, Abdu'l-Bahá talked there to them. And we walked into this little chapel. And it, of all the locations, I think, this that I got the strongest feeling. I could feel Abdu'l-Bahá's presence still mm. in, in this space. You could see him almost standing at the end of this place. And, and um, that night, he, he had $200 worth of quarters, and he gave them out to everybody. And he said, you know, so no one uh, went hungry that night. And, and he did that so often. He, he showed his, his kindness to the poor and his generosity. Um, and Juliet Thompson was there, and she describes it. She was uh, an ardent believer, but also Kate Carew came, and she was kind of a, a you know, a, a writer, a society writer that was kind of ironic and, um, you know, sometimes sarcastic in her in her method. Was she of like writing. a gossip columnist in a way. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And she ended up doing some sketches of Abdu'l-Bahá, but at any rate, she had a change of heart that night, and she called him as the breeze of—she referred to him as the breeze of God. Yeah, a full-page article she wound up publishing. Um, wow. And she always made fun of celebrities and politicians and everybody, mm-hmm. so she was she was happy to go along with this this uh, white-bearded man in the turban and robe and—, and uh, see what he was up to so she could, uh, you know, as I think Thornton Chase said, it was like, you know, gathering fodder for another, you know, scorching article. And um, mm. he admonished her because I think on the ride over, he he just, you know, and he did, he would do this thing. It's almost like he could read your thoughts. And he said, you know, the press have a very important role uh, in the to the public. You know, their job is to convey truthfully what is happening. Um, and uh, he asked her to be kind. Um, so, yeah, so she did. It was a beautiful article that, uh, mm. that she wrote. Yeah, there's, a, there's actually a lot of quotes throughout the Baha'i faith. Baha'u'llah has quotes, Abdu'l-Bahá, Shoghi Effendi, about the press and the role of press and the importance of press. And, and you see, you know, how messed up press has been, you know, over the last 100, 150 years and how agenda-filled and— destructive and and disunifying and uh, we really see how important that role is and uh, we've got a long way to go we do and and you know we we just need a moral compass uh, for a lot of things in our lives and in and in um, we uh, that's one of the reasons we use the the compass as uh, an icon a graphic for the film mm. Um, because you know that's what he represented to this country. You know he he helped the fledgling Baha'i community understand under, you know what it meant to be Baha'is, to what what it meant to be unified. To he he put the role of authority into the hands of women in a demonstration of the equality of men and women, um, mm. especially as relates to the uh, the building of the Baha'i House of Worship. He he put a woman in charge of that, which up to that point had an, an all-man council. Uh, mm. And He also said that world peace would be established, that women would lead the world into peace and, and uh, you know, support international arbitration and that they women would refuse to send their sons to war eventually, 
mm-hmm. and that, that war would cease and that humanity is coming of age. The yeah. one, one interesting thing, like uh, when he was in California, he at one of his talks, I think I believe it was in Sacramento, he said, may the first flag of international peace be upraised in this state. And then decades, decades later, in 1945, the Charter of the United Nations was signed mm. in, in San Francisco, and they hoisted the United Nations flag. So, you, you know, when he said stuff, things sort of, it mattered. It sort of resonated out into the future. And yeah. either he could visualize it or, you know, he put that energy out um, in, mm. a, in a spiritual way. I got a sneak peek of uh, some of this short documentary that you're doing about Abdu'l-Bahá in Paris, and just in watching the first 10 minutes of that or so, I've, I learned all kinds of stuff, like all of the places he visited in France and around Paris, and meetings with Ezra Pound and Rainer Muriel Rilke and other kind of poets and artists and dignitaries. Can you give us a, a sneak peek of what this project is, what it's about, and what you've learned about that uh, other very important visit to the Western world by Abdu'l-Bahá. Yes, and there's wonderful stories of of his visit to England, to Scotland, to um, Germany, and Hungary. So France, though, was the first place he visited, and it was the first time he spoke about the principles of Baha'u'llah. And he began articulating these. And most of the talks he gave in Paris were to small groups. But um, he always would give people what they needed to hear. And often, as Tim alluded to earlier, he, he knew people's thoughts. He, he could um, intuitively discern, you know, what, what people needed or answer their questions. Um, so a lot of people were attracted to his talks in Paris, and he stayed in an apartment, which we got to visit. We were only in Paris for nine days, and we had actually gone over to see a Klimt immersive art piece at Atelier de Lumière, and that was our f- initial motivation to go to Paris. And then we thought, well, why don't, while we're there, investigate Abdu'l-Bahá's journey? And yeah. it started us off on a whole new path, and we had five researchers who met us the first night we arrived and walked with us to a lot of places in Paris. So, you know, I, I didn't really know much about the, his travels or his journeys there. And um, we were very, um, very quickly enlightened by these historians. And one of the things that I came away from, from visiting Paris, he spent a lot of time, this is the, the years just prior to World War One, and he spent a lot of time doing diplomacy. And often he would have meetings with ambassadors and, um, you know, delegates um, behind closed doors where even his amanuenses, the people, his scribes and, you know, the people that were in his entourage weren't weren't allowed to, to go there. And he uh, really disdained war and the concept of war. And I think he knew what was coming. He even, uh, you know, talked about it in some of the talks that he gave. And um, one of the historians said this was... One of the very few times that, I mean, he, he never really kind of would put down people or especially, you know, call them out by name. But he said the arms manufacturers, he would call them out by name. He was just the, the idea 
of their contribution to the war effort was, you know, very disturbing to him, it seemed. Mm. So it was kind of a different vibe um, than his journey in America, it, it felt like to us um, when we were there. And we, we um, it was funny, we, we didn't know Paris, I mean, but there was no cars. We thought, you know, our guide would take us around in a car. Of course, we were pretty stupid about that kind of thing. We we wound up taking the metro everywhere, and we, we felt like I felt like gopher, a gopher. You know, we'd we'd go down in the metro and we'd ride somewhere and we'd pop up out of the ground, and then we'd walk ten blocks and shoot a doorway and get back in the metro and go another. You know, and we pop up. We just kept popping up all over Paris, and it's like I, I couldn't figure out like where, where are we and is what's going on here. You know, <laughs> yeah. But we did meet with the the secretariat at the NSA, uh, the National Spiritual Assembly um, of France. And uh, we did some interviews at their at their building and um, shot some archival um, things from their archive, old newsprints and things like that, and started to get a, a real better understanding. And th this film has interviews in it, uh, whereas Luminous Journey doesn't have interviews. And, you know, I think the reason we didn't do interviews you know, which is more of a traditional form of documentary at, at the time, is we, we kind of felt like the eyewitnesses of his journey in America, you know, and their accounts, yeah. you know, were, were going to be so much better than having um, some... A historian um, talk about it, right? Yeah, Because exactly. you had so many firsthand accounts and journals and newspaper articles and and copies of his talks that he gave throughout, you know, churches and yeah. other societies... And we're, we will first produce, well, we're going to produce the film in English, but also in, in the French language as well. Um, because, bon. yeah. So. Um, excellent. What else, uh, Anne, have you, did you learn about Abdu'l-Bahá in Paris? Well, there were some marvelous stories. One time, a, a, a gentleman of color came to see him at a hotel, and the hotel, Somebody turned him away, and Abdu'l-Bahá immediately moved out of that hotel the next day when he heard that. That um, So there were similar themes and stories. And um, one of the things that happened when he went to Switzerland, which was um, he arrived in Marseille and then went to Thanan-le-Bains, which is in France, and then went to Geneva and Vivet, and then came back through Paris to London and then back to France. And he spent more time in Paris than any other city. So mm. a lot of things happened, and, uh, and Americans generally are, are not aware of, of this part of his journey. But um, one of the things that happened is that they, they were going to take a boat ride, and they missed the boat, which also happened in the United States. Sometimes uh, things would happen, and he would miss a train, and then they would end up seeing the wreckage of the train they would have taken just like he didn't come on the Titanic, hmm. he, he sailed on a different ship. And then when the Titanic, um, of course, did not make it to New York, he just said, sometimes, you know, the intuition is, is strong. You know, it, uh, I've forgotten the exact quote. But in Switzerland, when they missed this boat, that day an American woman showed up who had all these um, criticisms of, of a believer in New York and Abdu'l-Bahá just didn't show up for lunch or anything. And finally he showed up and he said, I have a message for the friends in America. And, and he talked about unity. And it was just so obvious that he was aware of her frustration or whatever and was trying to instruct her 
mm. in the, and he said the the unity of the friends in America will be my invitation to America. Mm. And that goes back to the story that I had heard from from Liz. Right. Mm-hmm. There right. was um, when we were invited to to shoot at his apartment, which was where he stayed for. Um, a number of weeks at, at his first visit there in, in Paris, um, we were told a little story about the I mean, the apartment that they rented for him was brand new, this building. Um, it was near the Eiffel Tower, and um, it had all the amenities. It had a telephone. It had electric lights. There was even an elevator in it, and he was only on the, um, the, the what we would call the second floor. They would call it the first floor, but it had this bathtub, and so... What happened after he left? They leased the apartment to someone else, and the, the landlord of the of the building she moved this wonderful bathtub into her flat. And for years, you know, her, the, the bathtub that Abdul Baha had had his baths in uh, was in her apartment. And suddenly, you know, she was going to have to leave her apartment and move to some other country. And she said, you know, the saddest thing about doing leaving is that. Um, I have to leave this bathtub behind because every time I got in and I took a bath, it was the most wonderful experience I could ever have. And eventually, when the uh, the Baha'is of France, uh, they were able to purchase the apartment, they were also able to to get the original bathtub and, and to bring it back into the apartment. <laughs> That's great. That's great. They should charge for people to take baths in it. Hundred <laughs> yeah. bucks a pop. I well, do, do it. It's like making a pilgrimage when you go to this place. In fact, it's considered the third holiest place in Europe. The other two being in in uh, associated with Baha'u'llah in Constantinople and Istanbul. But um, Adrianople. Adrian, yeah, sorry, yeah. but um, yeah, it, one they, of the nopals. Right. Yes, I've been to Paris twice, and both times I've tried to go visit the apartment, and it's been closed because it has very limited hours. But we've stayed, stood across the street from Abdul Baha's apartment and, and uh, said prayers. Well, you do have to make an appointment, and then you go to this museum and meet other pilgrims that are there to go. It's a very formal process to go into the apartment and to hear the oh. stories and to have tea and cookies and to. Yeah to um, observe this. And then there's the room where he slept, which is like a, it's like Greenacre's um, Abdu'l-Bahá's room where people go for prayer and meditation. But Mm. there's also a cabinet with these wonderful archives. For example, the suitcase he carried on his travels is there. Mm. And the House of Justice had sent some gifts to Paris when they had purchased the apartment. And it's a very precious experience, but of course we couldn't film the things that were inside the cabinet, and we couldn't film inside the room, the bedroom of Abdul Baha, which is mm. reserved for prayer and meditation. Yeah, a lot mm. of a lot of the talks he gave in that apartment wound up in the book Paris Talks. Mm-hmm. I have a quote from um, something he said in Paris. He he told the friends gathered, "It is certain that because this gathering has been a divine assemblage." It will never be forgotten, and whenever recollected, it will produce fresh delight. This is my wish. So we've been experiencing this fresh delight as we've gone to many of the places he's visited, and we feel like the stories never get old. And another thing he said is that, I am always a traveler to America. So it's a timeless journey. It's not something just that happened. 
mm. that we can't tune into, but he's always still coming or just mm. having come. I mean, I think when hearts are connected to Abdu'l-Bahá, uh, well, here's another quote, if the believers establish in a befitting manner union and harmony with spirit, tongue, heart, and body, suddenly they shall find Abdu'l-Bahá in their midst. So it's like he's a living presence that's always accessible to us. It was very eye-opening for for me personally when we traveled, and uh, especially we we spent a little time um, shooting in Scotland as as well. And um, every place that we went, the Baha'is had their own historian or guide who knew, like, well, he went Abdul Baha went down this street, and he he went there, and and I, I began to realize how much Abdul Baha is loved. And now, like in Edinburgh, Abdul Baha only spent like two days, three days, and they're so in love with him, and they're so proud that he came to their city, and, you know, they just, you know, they know every little tidbit, and the same thing in, in Paris, you know, and I, I began to realize that all of us, you know, he he's universal, he's all of us around the world who are Baha'is, who, who know him, hold him in this very, very special place in our hearts, and, um, and to the fact that he came to our country and to spent the time and he came to Canada is really a, a miracle, honestly, mm. a mm. miracle. Yeah. Mm. Well said. Well, Anne and Tim, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on Baha'i Blogcast and sharing your love and experiences with Abdul Baha and your, your wonderful filmmaking process. Um, is there a, a destination on the web that people can find your work? Um, well, it's right now the best. The best thing is to to look at um, the Luminous Journey YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube, look for Luminous Journey, and it's mm -hmm. the it will say the official Luminous Journey channel. Mm -hmm. And on it, we have not any of the knockoff Luminous Journey channels. Yeah, well, I you know early on, I think I created my own knockoff channel, and I can't figure out how to get rid of it. So there, <laughs> there may be two Luminous Journeys out there. Um, yeah, look for the official one. Yeah, look for the official you one. You can't have too much luminosity. <laughs> so True. so you know we we have we've also included some behind the scenes of of of. The, the our personal journey and we have broken the this two and a half hour film down into chapters so there's yeah. 31 chapters where you can just if you just want to see what he did in california you can jump to that and yeah. um and we're putting a, a, it also has the full-length uh, persian language version which we were assisted by the universal house of justice they they appointed a committee to help us um, create a, a persian language version that was then aired on voice of america in in the middle east and um Wonderful. So as Great. we get other languages, we're going to put them up on the on the channel as well. Terrific. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for being a part of this. So Thank nice you, to Rain. meet you and get to know you. Thank you for the beautiful stories. Thank oh, you, Ray. It was an honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.